Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have one of the great sports writers of the last quarter century, John Worthon. You might know that name from Sports Illustrated. And he is also the author of a new book called Glory Days, the Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. I want to talk to John Worthon about the Olympics then. And perhaps we're going to talk a little bit about the coming Los Angeles Olympics in 2028. Also, I've got some choice words about Antonio Brown. Just stand up and just sit down awards. But first, let's talk to John Wertheim. So, glory days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. Um, yeah, I, I've been in that situation, John, where, where you're in a room, maybe you have a whiteboard up, you're trying to think of a book topic that really captures your passion and interest. Is that how you came about this? Like what attracted you to this topic of all topics you could choose? There was very much a whiteboard. Um, the, the backstory, the origin story is I had written a story for sports illustrated about uh, the, the 1984 Olympic trials held in my hometown in Indiana when I was in middle school. And uh, someone said, well, turn, turn it into a book. And I said, yeah, you know, um, Jack, Jack McCallum, my, uh, my dear friend, um, had written that dream team book about the 92 Olympics. I, I think it was a whole book about the 1984 Olympic team, but I kind of, as you say, exactly. You sort of, uh, get, I have, a, I have a whiteboard in my office and you start sort of, uh, scripting out everything else that happened that summer. And it's, I sort of realized I could use this Olympic team and Michael Jordan and, and Nike as the spine, but talk about everything else that was going around that was also happening in that, uh, that 90 day window. Um, I don't know if you can even distinguish the two anymore since you've done a whole book on it, but as a middle schooler, what do you remember about the 1984 Olympics? Um, I mean, to me, the big thing was the trials. So I grew, I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana. Bob Knight was the basketball coach at Indiana. 
he was sort of the, the king of the mountain. So everybody came to my town to try out. And I just remember, um, you know, on the sports craze, nerdy, whatever I was, sixth grader, I guess. Um, and what I remember is just how pure and like what, it, what not a big deal it was that you had all, you know, Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan and Wayman Tisdale, and you had all these guys, and they were kind of walking around town. And if you were bored, you could walk into the gym and go watch them practice. There were no security guards. There were no agents. There were no handlers. Um, it, it sounds very kind of uh, old man nostalgic. But looking back, I'm really struck. I mean, you know, Michael Jordan wasn't Michael Jordan, obviously, but he still, everyone knew who he was. He was the third pick in the draft. He was still, you know, he'd taken his team to the NCAA title. And he walked around town. You know, he'd, he'd go play putt-putt, and they, some group of people in Indiana would need a fourth. And Michael Jordan, you know, Michael Jordan went to the prom of Edgewood High School because it happened to be going on in the facility where the players were staying. And he was bored on a Saturday night. And it was a real sort of... Uh, you hate to lapse into this. I remember when sports were pure and before commercial interests contaminated everything, but it, even, even at the time, I think it was pretty remarkable how completely normal this all felt. Wow. That, that, that those are indelible memories. If someone asked you, why did you become a sports writer? Would, would you track it to that moment? Yeah. I mean, this certainly was this sort of pivotal moment for me that it's one thing to be this, this kind of nerdy sports fan, but when all these guys come to your town and they're really cool and, you know, Chuck person needs someone to shoot pool with. So here's a stick, uh, you break, um, seeing how these were just, just normal people. They, you know, I, Sam Perkins, I remember like broke up with his girlfriend on a payphone, and some, some of it was just the, the proximity and, and I guess what you'd now call access. But some of it also was this real glimpse that these were just, you know, they, they were, bigger than I was and they could shoot better, but these are normal people that go through life and they get homesick. And they also, I'm dating myself, but they, they also need an extra dime when their money in the payphone uh, elapsed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely it was, I, I didn't really write about it. I didn't, it wasn't a memoir. Like I, I didn't really personalize too much stuff, but looking back, yeah, I, I think definitely that, um, that did not extinguish my passion for sports, put it that way. Mm-hmm. And and were you like me also in the 1980s reading Sports Illustrated as almost like a religious ritual? The McCallums, the DeFords, the Kirkpatricks, the Montvilles. Was were, 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 that your sort of uh, sports writing ecosystem? Every Thursday. Yeah. Yep. I mean, Every Thursday. Know, it's, That's it's right. Really, you know, I think, you know, again, I, I really resist trying to sound like the old man, but I think, um, you know, if you're, if you're like like you and I of a certain age, it's really hard. You know, you're you're in the middle of Indiana, right? You don't have cable. I mean, because my parents were my parents, so you know, barely had a TV. But this was how you learned about sports and who these guys were. And there was, I mean, obviously there was no social media, but there wasn't even really ESPN at the time. Every Thursday, you know, three o'clock when the school bus dropped me off and there was a magazine in the mailbox, that was kind of how you learned everything. No, that's right, and um. That, that's that's my fault for walking you down memory lane there as opposed right. to being more forward looking. So I'll get forward looking here. Um, you know, all Olympics have their controversies and their skeletons and their closet. Um, what was there in 1984, you think, that looking back surprised you to learn of what's sometimes a very lionized celebrated Olympic Games? Oh, man. I mean, in some ways, this was real. Remember, we were coming off of 72 is best known for, you know, the, the murder of, of 
Israeli athletes. In 76, you had these massive cost overruns. 80 was a boycott. I mean, the Olympics were really teetering. And these were kind of the first, you know, this kind of, in some ways, sort of the first modern commercialized Olympics where you had sponsors and you had, you know, Peter Uberoff's great feat was he turned this into a profitable enterprise and we're going to have bidding wars for, for rights. We're going to have sponsors. I, as far as sort of dark sides and corruption, I, I didn't really realize this. So I just stumbled upon it researching this book that there was this huge blood doping scandal with the U S cycling team. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge loophole in the anti-doping laws and basically members of the U S cycling team. And they sort of admitted this later had, it's just sort of like, uh, you know, a, a precursor, obviously, to, to Lance Armstrong and to more sinister doping. But fair, fairly openly, these guys all, you know, half the team had transfusions before before the games. And it kind of uh, was a precursor of what was to come. Mm. Did, did you find any evidence of local L.A. protests to the games or any friction or conflict between the local communities and putting on the games? Um, you know, it's it sort of, it was one of these things where the, the promise came that, look, this is not going to, one of the great sort of appeals of, of Uberoth especially was, we're not going to build these white elephants. This is not going to cost the taxpayers. This was very much in keeping with sort of small government, Reagan 80s. We're going to use the, the Rose Bowl and we're going to use the Coliseum. And I, I think the only structure they built was a velodrome. So I think that sort of uh, helped temper any sort of outrage. And then the irony that people in LA will tell you is everybody was worried it was going to be this traffic, you know, the sort of, uh, what do they call it with uh, a few years ago, the sort of traffic apocalypse. Yeah. Um, and it turned out every, everybody, everybody in LA just left. And they said that traffic has never been lighter until the pandemic. But uh, no, I mean, there, there, this was in the height of the Cold War. So there were some sort of real Russian dissident groups. And um, it was really more politically motivated than I think the kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of, I think, very justifiable, like the kind of resistance and dissent you have today around cities that don't want to take on the financial cost. They don't like what the Olympics stand for. This, this didn't really have much of that. Um, but again, sort of the, the mandate from L.A., and again, this was very much in keeping with the times, was this has got to be lean and mean, and we're turning this into a business. And if you think you're going to lean on taxpayers and the municipal government to go build these stadiums that are only going to be used for, for 14 days, forget it. You know, I think if today there was an Olympics and for whatever reason, a huge portion of the world said they were going to boycott it, we would look at the gold medals a little bit askance. And with, we would, you know, we love assigning asterisks these days. But in 84, there was kind of a, that wasn't the case at all, was it? I mean, we saw people like Mary Lou Retton and uh, Carl Lewis a, as incredible Olympians. I mean, does, does that was that surprising at all? Looking back ab- about the the reception, given the the state of affairs. Yeah, I mean the boycott. It was Soviet bloc countries. Um, so you know, if if you sort of look at sprint times and swim times, yeah, I mean the, the competition was definitely diluted. One thing I wrote about it's kind of like more fun 80s nostalgia and we're, we're really uh we're really going heavy on this now but but i think there's actually something to it um you know again this is a time when we did not have the technology we do now so we didn't necessarily know what we were missing right it wasn't like oh there, there's this star athlete and i've seen him on youtube and boy if he's not going to be there it's going to really make the wrestling competition diluted I, mean, I don't think we quite knew what we were missing but also remember that 
I think you're a little younger than I. But you remember the McDonald's scratch off game? I so do you, remember the McDonald's scratch off game. <laughs> so it's uh, you know this has been like lampooned on the Simpsons, and it's it's kind of one of these '80s. Uh, but you know if, if U.S. won gold, you won a Big Mac or a burger, and if they won silver, you got fries and bronze, you got a drink, and the country got absolutely swept up in this. And uh, in the short term, it was to McDonald's great financial detriment. But I think what it did is it absolutely, the ratings for these games, these are the highest rated games ever, at least in the United States. Um, I don't have in front of me, but it's something, you know, two out of every three households. I mean, it was just phenomenal, like double Super Bowl ratings for these Olympics. And this silly McDonald's scratch-off game where everybody was so invested in getting a free Big Mac, it, it sounds ridiculous, but I think that really sort of changed the way we looked at these medals being won and everyone got free food and everyone got free McDonald's. It was kind of this, this little bit of patriotism, but also this Americana where you got your, you know, you got your fast food. I think in some ways it kind of overwhelmed anyone's broader perspective of, of who's here and who isn't where you're, you're right today. I mean, if you had a mass boycott, especially in an event where one country or one part of the world was dominant, you'd sort of say, well, yeah, they won the gold in you know, whatever. And, 2024 in Paris, but look who wasn't there. I, there really wasn't much of that. And initially when the Soviets boycotted, like ABC was the broadcast. The, the ABC Cap City stock dropped that day because everybody was afraid nobody would watch the games. But between this sort of, you know, a, a lot of it was patriotism slash nationalism and a lot of it was the buildup. Um, there was a jet pack and a opening ceremony and it was kind of this, this nice American summer and it was you know, Reagan running for reelection. By the time the game started, it was much more about Carl Lewis and Mary Lou Retton and Michael Jordan than, than who wasn't there. And it was a game, you, know, you look at the, whether it's Atlanta bombing or you sort of look at some of the controversies that have come up, there was very little of that. So there wasn't anything especially negative. There was nothing tarring these games. There was nothing tarnishing these games. It was a lot of American success. It was in the U.S. It was in California, which also, you know, I, I think you have to tie this to Reagan. This was, you know, the, the place where the president we elected in a landslide was coming from. It was a very kind of rah-rah Americana summer. And I think that that was much more the prevailing theme and who, who boycotted these games and why. Hmm. It's, it's really, really interesting. The, uh, so, so in Los Angeles, there's this huge, uh, there's a lot of controversy and we can expect years of it for the 2028 Olympics that are going to be held there. Does the experience of the 84 Olympics have anything to teach uh, Angelinos, you know, most of whom may not have even been born by 1984? Um, that's a really good question. I think some of it is just sort of the balance sheet, which really, I mean, it's, you know, we, we can debate whether this is, uh, you know, grounds for canonization or not. But when people talk about Peter Ubroth, I mean, that's often what they end up sort of distilling it to, was that these games, not only did these games spit out a profit, I'll, I'll tell you something interesting, the, the, um, the surplus was reinvented in LA sports. So the basketball court where, you know, where Russell Westbrook learned to play basketball was funded by the 84 Olympics, the surplus. Some of the tennis programs that Venus and Serena Williams first entered in, in Los Angeles were funded by this surplus. So, I mean, you do have this kind of weird after effect. Um, you know, sometimes the after effect is Athens and, and Montreal spend decades paying off their debt. Uh, this is much different. Um, but, you know, I think, I think as Olympics go, 
and I, I'm not I'm not an Olympic historian. I just sort of happened to be this this year. I'm not an Olympic historian, but I I still think this is pretty much held up as the model Olympic. So I think the good vibes from LA, I and mean, we're talking, you know, I mean, this is almost you know, whatever it is for 40 years later. So I don't want to attribute too much to it, but I do think um, not a lot of scar tissue in LA. I mean, I think overall this is seen as a very successful Olympics. And again, the fact that there were not these big expensive building projects. Um, probably contributed to that. It wasn't like people were left with a bill, but I think that probably helped with, uh, you know, I don't know if you, if Tokyo had a bid in 20 years, I, I don't think it would be met with uh, quite as much. I think the reception would be a little different. I, I'm not sure um, sort of general feeling in LA was anything other than good vibes. Yeah. So one of the things that people could say today is that the experience of the 84 Olympics shows us We don't have to create these white elephants all over the city or tear up neighborhoods to be able to host the Olympics. People could say that, right? Yeah, exactly. And and there was there was very little of that. There was none of that. That's interesting because these debate. That's just something we've covered on the podcast. Like the debates are are fierce in L.A. right now and, and very polarized about the Olympics. So there's also this battle for the history of 1984. That's fascinating and going on at the same time. And I know a lot of these folks were really tuned in when your book came out because they, they, they feel like this is something that both sides are are really wrestling over. Not just should we do this in the forward looking sense, but what's the what are the lessons from 84 that either aid or 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 reject, you know, our, our thesis about whether or not the Olympics are good for the city. Exactly. And when we talk about, you know, I mean, I'm probably guilty of this just now, but when we talk about people who leave town because they're afraid of the traffic or we talk about all of these kind of these financial, uh, you know, the surplus. Um, it's probably important to recognize wh- where's that going and who, who has the luxury of going to Palm Springs for those two weeks. But um, I, you know, I mean, I think the other part of this too, is just the, the Olympics have changed so much since then um, mm. that the scope and scale of what happened in LA is in 84 is obviously be dwarfed by a, a modern Olympics, especially in, 2028. I mean, I, I'm sort of of the mind the Olympics have almost passed their expiration date. I'm not sure Olympics have the, uh, the, the the relevance. We'll see what the ratings are in a few weeks uh, from China. But I, I mean, I'm sort of of the opinion the Olympics meant something very different to athletes, to the world, to sports scene, to technology, even in, in the 80s than they do now. I, I sort of I'm of the I'm of the mind we don't really need the Olympics anymore, but that's that's probably a tangent we don't need to explore. Well, another time. I mean, I'd love to talk to you about that, but I know that I want I want to respect your times very much. That would be fascinating to walk down that that uh, particular tunnel with you. But before before you go, um, I was going to ask you all these questions about Djokovic, but I'm I'm yeah, I'm so wanting to push that out of my head, and instead I just want to ask you as, as a, <laughs> As someone who who certainly is very familiar with the history of the Williams sisters, what your thoughts were about King Richard? What did it get right? What did it get wrong? And does it earn the John Wertheim thumbs up? Oh, man, uh, that, that is a complicated story. I should probably uh, dis- disclose that I had been I've had a number of communications with the filmmakers as they went through it. Um, man. You're going you're gonna to get me in trouble. I, I would say as, as a film, it is a soaring success. I, th- I thought it was really good. Just as a, as a sports movie, I thought it was well-written. I thought it was well-structured. Richard Williams is a really problematic figure. 
And, you know, the, the fact that this had Venus and Serena's blessing, I, I don't take lightly. And part of me is like, if, if, if they're good with it, we should be too at some level. At the same time, um, you know, I mean, I, I think Richard will, I think they were, they were wise to end the film when they did because Richard Williams becomes very problematic and it, it does not take, uh, you know, a couple of quick Google searches would reveal why. I would like to have seen Orison Williams get a lot more credit uh, if I were to do this, it would have been the, the, the king and the queen. And I think um, Orsi Williams too often gets short shrift when it comes to retelling the story. But um, it, it's complicated. I mean, Richard Williams is not um, a, you know, he's a complicated figure. And, and 90 minute scripts don't always build in complication. And uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's good they ended it where they did because I think things would have gotten a little bit dicey after that. And it, it does not take much internet sleuthing to see that R Richard Williams has a uh, darker side. There are other children out there who do not share Venus and Serena um, and, and Asian Lynn's sort of view of him. And that's fine. You know, pe people are complicated. We should be able to hold complicated ideas in our heads. But I, I thought that film I, it got a little dangerous for me. I just, I thought um, it, it veered awfully close to uh, a, a hagiography that, if it doesn't comport with the facts, it certainly cherry picks. And uh, it, it, that gave me a little pause, to be honest. Got you. And then I'll appreciate you sharing your thoughts about that. And then just got to end with this. Your, your book is called The 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. The title, Glory Days, of course, reference 1984, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, who, who is the soundtrack of those 90 days? Oh man, um, the soundtrack here. I mean, Springsteen, obviously. I would say Prince figures prominently. Cindy Lauper figures prominently. Michael Jackson. But it, to, to me, it's the, the funny you say soundtrack. Because what I realized going back was that the real kind of uh, the, the sort of the fulcrum, the real kind of pivot point, is that we we had these little things on MTV called videos, and uh, mm. everybody started to you know summer of '84 was a huge summer for cable whether it was ESPN or whether it was CNN or MTV, uh, the sort of cable really exploded in, in 84 and particularly over the summer when people needed things to do. And you say soundtrack, but the fact that we could marry these little three and a half minute movies to our favorite song and we could see what Bruce Springsteen looked like when he was in concert and we could see Prince on his motorcycle and we you know some really famous directors got their start. I mean, they, sometimes it was just concert footage like, like Springsteen, but other times you know, I mean, some of the most famous directors got their start doing these videos. I, I think it was a huge summer for music in the sense that we now had this this video component to go with the audio. And the fact that for the first time, a lot of us were actually seeing these artists perform. And whether it was, you know, Men at Work or The Police or whoever our favorite bands were, the fact that we had these little matching videos, I, I think was a huge sort of... Uh, pivot point in the way we, you know, the, the way we reacted to and related to music. Wow. Hey, John Wertheim, I, I really do appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us on the pod. You got it. Anytime. Thanks, Dave. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. In the 1977 Paul Newman classic Slapshot, a film about a down-and-out hockey team with a penchant for extreme violence, a player takes off all his clothes on the ice, stripping while lazily skating around. People are predictably outraged, but he is holding up a mirror to the violence of his sport and asking why his naked body is out of bounds, but bludgeoning another human being is not. An echo of this scene played out in the middle of an NFL game Sunday when Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receiver Antonio Brown took off his jersey, undershirt, shoulder pads, and gloves and tossed them into the crowd before leaving the gladiatorial arena shirtless and smiling. Yet unlike the slapshot scenario, Brown wasn't trying to hold a mirror up to his sport. He is the mirror. We don't know what motivated his actions. Brown has said some things and they're in conflict with what other people are saying about whether or not he was forced to play with an injury, although it does certainly look like Brown knows what he's talking about and has some receipts to that effect. But bigger than that, Brown and his breakdown are a brutal reflection of the league's moral bankruptcy. It tells us that any excuse will be made for players as long as they can still contribute on the field. A player can exhibit numerous signs of psychological or medical trauma, yet that will be ignored by an army of enablers if he can help a team win. This calculation is why Brown's volatility burst into public notice. Now, NFL announcers scolded Brown instead of asking why he was in a uniform in the first place. His presence on the field also speaks to what it actually takes to torpedo one's career. Brown over the last three years has been accused of sexual assault twice, assault upon a delivery driver, and forging a vaccination card. He has spoken about his own psychological issues, yet in the face of that, all his coach Bruce Arians would say as recently as the week before the on-field meltdown, this is what Bruce Arians said. He said, I could give a bleep what critics think. The only thing I care about is this football team and what's best for us. Think about that. Not what's best for Brown, what's best for us. And us is a multi-billion dollar NFL team trying to get back to the Super Bowl. There's also room to blame all-world quarterback Tom Brady, who has now vouched for Brown in two separate occasions, even offering to let Brown live in his house so he could keep tabs on him and his behavior. Brady said that after Brown's stripped-down meltdown, I think everybody should find and do what they can to help him. We all love him. We care about him deeply. Brady sounds compassionate, but his actions towards Brown have been geared toward getting him on a football field. It's been less about getting Brown the help he may need and more about Brady's looking to extend his own seemingly endless career by making sure he has one of the game's great receivers in his lineup. Also, as Adam Kilgore wrote in the Washington Post, he put it perfectly. He said, Brady showed little compassion and empathy towards the women who accused Brown, or the employees whom Brown stiffed, or the people whom he threatened violence against. If Brady wanted Brown to get the mental health help he needed, playing in the NFL didn't need to be a part of it. 
but Brown could help Brady win football games, and that took priority. Now, Brown's career, despite his being only 33, is perhaps over. It's interesting. Uh, When I first was thinking about this, I thought, oh, his career is assuredly over. But there are already rumors about a team trying to get him back. All his transgressions could be forgiven. Except perhaps this last one. Quitting on a team in the middle of a game. That violates the number one rule in the minds of NFL owners as surely as taking a knee during the national anthem. What both of these disparate, seemingly incomparable actions have in common is that they push back against the obedience demanded in the racialized labor discipline that franchise owners feel the need to impose on their workforce. Do what you want off the field, but between the lines, the operative word is control. Brown cannot be controlled by Brady, Arians, or NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, and that is proving to be his greatest sin, and it could make him unemployable. The league prioritizes this discipline above all else, and Brown's meltdown made it clear for all to see. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now's the time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. It's not really a Just Stand Up. It's just, you know, I have to just raise a glass and bow my head in the memory of Sidney Poitier. Is that necessarily sports related? It is not. But I can tell you that Sidney Poitier, the films of Poitier, absolutely changed my life. Uh, It started when I was a teenager and saw a movie called Shoot to Kill that Poitier was in with like Tom Berenger and Kirstie Alley. This was his big comeback film after years away from movie making. And that film was like a B-movie thriller, but Poitier just like cracked the screen. And I remember being young and just saying, I have to watch all this guy's films. So I went through the Poitier canon, like Edge of the City, which is amazing uh, if you've never seen it. A Blackboard Jungle, um, I guess who's coming to dinner uh, in the heat of the night to Sir with Love and Lilies of the Field for which he won his Oscar, and I can name other films too. The films he did with Cosby are are amazing. Buck and the Preacher is a terrific movie. And what I think of when I think about Sidney Poitier also is just what a tremendous wasted opportunity of the great directors of that time. Because remember, that was the explosion of the new Hollywood where directors like Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola they all, they all rose to the fore and started making movies in a different kind of a way. And they never cast Poitier. They cast 
other white ethnics who were mirrors of themselves. People like Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, James Caan. They never saw beyond themselves to say, maybe Sidney Poitier could play the lead in Thief or play Tom Hagen in The Godfather or play Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. Would these have been different films with a black lead? Of course they would. But so what? In some cases, it might have made them more interesting or intriguing. So you take a film like Taxi Driver, maybe instead of it being about like the white lone gunman who's slowly going crazy in our society, and maybe instead you've got Sidney Poitier, Vietnam veteran, coming back home and looking for some way to fit in uh, as a black man in the cauldron the racial cauldron that is the New York City of the 1970s. I'm not saying that would be a better film. I'm saying it would be a different film and a totally worthy film. And the directors of that whole period blew it. But you know what? Hell with them. Hell with Hollywood. Burn Hollywood, burn. And so much love to Sidney Poitier for truly not just paving the way, but being one of the great presences in the history of modern cinema. The Just Sit Your Ass Down award goes to Aaron Rodgers. Sit your ass down. Aaron Rodgers, just just please shut up. Please. Please shut up about the woke mob out to get you. Please shut up about cancel culture. Please shut up about your theories on vaccinations. I'm sorry, but just because you went to Berkeley doesn't make you smart. And just because you finally picked up Atlas Shrugged in your late 30s doesn't make you deep. Uh, it just makes you a little bit sad. Uh, you're the best thrower of the football I've ever seen in my entire life. You should be the most valuable player this year, but you gotta stop being you. I mean, you really have two choices. You can look in the mirror and say, why did I become such a self-involved jerk? Or you could read Atlas Shrugged and it'll tell you that all of your feelings are validated and justified because you're you. Something tells me you're gonna pick the latter. Because everybody picks the ladder in our society rather than do the hard work of trying to figure out how to be a better human being. Yes, I'm a little down on the human race at the moment, but it's all good. Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Thank you for John Wertheim's time. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. For everybody out there listening, mask up. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.